for the last 13 weeks, tonight being the 13th lesson in that series, that it brings us to a crescendo, a zenith, a conclusion, if you please. And in so doing, we have the opportunity to reach some concluding and final thoughts that hopefully can be used by each of us to motivate us to more earnest and sincere service unto our Heavenly Father. We have seen so many things in these 48 chapters. We have been apprised of the characteristic of God's judgment upon Israel, reminding them of their sin and bringing to their attention the fact that He does not tolerate it. We've also learned some interesting teaching methods, everything from haircuts to building cities on tiles. We have found along the way parables, the death of Ezekiel's wife. We've even learned about a valley full of dry bones. All the while, as we've studied each of them, we have found them in their placement. We have found them having marvelous messages of great power and importance behind them. This evening, as you'll see at the bottom of that slide, we come to the last five chapters of the book of Ezekiel. Chapters 44 through 48, not only do these close the book, they also do so with a rather positive and demanding tone. Let's come then to chapter number 44 to begin our appreciation. And this chapter falls squarely upon the foundation that was constructed in chapters 40 through 43 last Sunday evening. We learned as we studied those chapters that God made a special reference to a temple. This was a temple that highlighted the greatness of approaching to God, the provision of God, and the exquisite characteristic that was given to that temple. You and I look at some videos that portrayed that by virtue of the imagination of men tailored to the dimensions that the Scriptures had set forth. As we looked at them, we come to some of these observations. Chapter 44 picks up referring to that same temple we saw in those videos. We notice in the first three verses of Ezekiel 44 that one of the gates of that temple is especially singled out and mentioned. It's the eastern gate. It was on this occasion, it was stated that that gate was especially significant and no one on earth except the prince was to go through it. It was to remain closed virtually all the time except when the priest entered it. And the reason for its special character was because the text says the Lord passed through that gate. That made that gate extremely interesting and intriguing. You'll notice immediately beginning in verse number 4 that God reminded Ezekiel yet again to set before the people the impressiveness of their sins and how that this temple and its holiness was so distinct from careless, ungodly living. And so it is that God then gave in the verses that followed an especial significance to the priests. It's interesting, isn't it, that this tailors so well to that book of Leviticus we've been studying. We learned on Sunday morning in our study of Leviticus that all of the people were demanded in terms of holiness. God expected all of them to respect His law and to respect His will and to live in a way that was described as holy. But he had some special words of holiness for the priests. They were to be examples to the people, to teach them, to always conduct themselves in the most upright and holy fashion. There were certain things that the people could do, but the priests could not. When we come to Ezekiel 44, we find another lesson along that same line. The priests are singled out, and they are attached to the subject of holiness unlike any other. They are forewarned in Ezekiel 44 that there were certain matters in life they could not do because God demanded their holiness. 
Isn't it interesting in that light that we find in verses 15 and 16 that a special family of the priests is singled out, the family of Zadok, and we're even told why. They remained faithful to the presentation of God even when the Israelites apostatized, even when they turned away from God. We can be thankful that there have through the centuries of time been those likened unto Zadok. They wouldn't compromise no matter what. They always understood that the truth must reign supreme over all else. And so it was with the family of Zadok. It is then that God gives them a special privilege. They are the family given opportunity in this temple vision to actually offer the sacrifices on the altar in this temple that Ezekiel had seen. You'll notice in verses 17 to 31, the last half of Ezekiel 44, that there's another reference to the high standard of holiness demanded of the priests. In fact, as you look at that, it quickly brings us to the reality of these lessons. It seems one cannot really read Ezekiel 44 without some of these thoughts so quickly passing to our heart and mind. What does this mean for you and me? It's interesting to visualize this ancient temple of Ezekiel's day, but what does it mean for me today? And what might it suggest for you in your walk with the Lord? May I suggest these two seemingly leap off the page. There is a continued emphasis upon the matter of holiness. You and I live in an age when so often holiness is called a fanatical thing. You live how you like and you go to services on a Sunday or whenever you feel like it. But holy living is just not that much demanded by God. He only cares what's on your heart, not what, how you live, not what you say, not the kind of places you frequent. But may we suggest one more time, all of that is a lie of the devil. This chapter, as much as any in Ezekiel, highlights the fact that in this temple vision, God demanded holiness of His people. And there would be no approach unto God without it. Isn't it true that we find those passages in the New Testament that ring so boldly with that consideration? Hebrews 12, 14, does it still not say, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. That's strong language, isn't it? Without holiness, no man is going to see the Lord. You and I can, in fact, fool the people about us. We can talk one way when we're in their presence and then talk completely differently when we're not in their presence and we can fool them into thinking we're religious. But we can't fool God. Never have we been able nor shall we ever be able to fool Him. I'm reminded of that poem written by Glenville Kleiser entitled, You Can't Fool God. And it goes like this, you can fool the hapless public. You can be a subtle fraud. You can hide your little meanness, but you can't fool God. You can advertise your virtues. You can self-achievement laud. You can load yourself with riches, but you can't fool God. You'll notice those two verses, if you please, have already highlighted so many things that the world may lift so high. And yet it says in every instance, you can't fool God. He wasn't finished. Verse 3, you can criticize the Bible. You can be a selfish clod. You can lie, swear, drink, and gamble but you can't fool God. Things that the world so often points the finger to and highlights as fun and pleasurable and exciting, but it'll doom your soul. 
And you and I, perhaps under the cover of day or night, may hide our activities thereof, but we can never hide them from the all-seeing eye of the God of heaven. Verse 4. In this closing verse to that little poem, the writer goes on to say, You can magnify your talent. You can hear the world applaud. Interesting, isn't it? But then it concludes like this. You can boast yourself somebody, but you can't fool God. That little poem has so many thoughts that seemingly echo the sentiment of Ezekiel chapter 44. With that in mind, perhaps one final consideration. The impressive sanctity and solemnity that attaches to the act of worship. Worship is not a careless activity. It's not a show up, take care of this, tick an hour off on the clock and go home. Worship is eternally serious. And if you and I don't engage in it in a way respectful to the ways of God, God doesn't accept it. It's not pleasing in His sight. And with that, the curtain closes on chapter 44 and opens chapter 45. As you look into this chapter with me, I've paired it with chapter 46. Taking these two together, we immediately encounter a continued description of the interesting features surrounding this temple. We learned last Lord's Day evening about the detailed attributes and the dimensions and the way in which it may have appeared. Chapter number 45 takes us to consider the territory around that temple. What was that like? How much land went along with it? Let us give some attention to that thought as well. As you do that, perhaps here is another picture. It's not unlike that which we considered last week, but this one's a still picture admittedly. But I would ask you to notice as you look at it, again, appreciate the enormity of what lies outside the temple. How big of land area went with it? Did God specify? Did He say? One more thing I would encourage you to notice is there is what looks to be a blue ribbon that comes out of that particular uh, temple as well. We'll learn later in the lesson tonight that wasn't just an arbitrary point on the part of the person who drew that. Chapter number 47 will describe it, so I would invite you to think about this as we get to that in just a moment. For right now, let us return and look at this picture as well. The description given in Ezekiel 45 is a portrayal of land that looks like this. You'll notice that there's an allotment of land for the temple proper. There's an allotment of land for the Levites which were to dwell nearby. There's an allotment of land for the particular district of the city. And if you're able to read those, you'll notice numbers are provided. 25,000 cubits was to be the particular dimension and it was to have a square arrangement. And particularly in that, there was divisions for the particular temple itself and certain chambers that went along with it. All of that information is provided for our consideration. In this particular colored presentation, I thought that that corresponded very well, but here's yet another picture that does the same. This one perhaps shows with a white background, so perhaps a bit easier to read. The 25,000 cubits as dimension on the top. You'll notice the particular territory as you can see it as well. The territory of the prince left and right. The characteristics of the temple with the Levites just to its north. Furthermore, you'll notice mention, and we'll highlight this in just a moment. At the very top of the slide, you'll note the word Judah. 
just to the north of the Levite's possession, and at the bottom the word Benjamin just to the south of the city proper. You might wonder, where are the other tribes of ancient Israel? Are they mentioned as well? And if so, in what way? With those pictures in mind, let's revisit the former slide and finish our consideration of chapters 45 and 46. You'll notice quickly in passing that something amazing is detailed as this chapter unfolds. Not only are the dimensions of that land set forth, and not only are the characteristics of some of the attributes of worship mentioned, the offerings are mentioned. There's the sin offering and the burn offering and the peace offering and the meal offering. They take their place here just as they had in the book of Leviticus. You'll notice the particular description here is detailed in its nature. They are told how and when they shall employ and offer those offerings. Furthermore, there is something incredibly interesting in chapter 46 verse 9. There is a highlight to the orderliness with which the people are to enter and exit the temple proper. That may immediately cause us to scratch our head in wonderment. But in a moment, I believe we'll appreciate the message that God wished His people to understand then and even now. And then you'll notice with me in chapters 46, verses 16 and following, statements about the inheritance of the land are mentioned. That takes us back to the book of Leviticus as well as Numbers. In those books, we recall that the children of Israel were told that the inheritance of the land was to remain in the family. And if it was ever sold in the Jubilee year, it was to be given back to the family to which it originally belonged. We notice that something like that is described yet again as it related to this marvelous temple. The land was not to be transferred from one tribe to another. It was to be inherited fully and thoroughly within the character of the family to which it had originally belonged. As before, what lessons might speak to you and me about these two chapters, Ezekiel chapters 45 and 46? Though it may be quick in passing, it seems as though four again leap from the page to you and to me. One of them surely is this one. It is true, we notice in chapter 45 and again in chapter 46, God said something interesting about the prince. You and I remember earlier, he was blessed to enter the eastern gate of the temple and he alone among the normal people were allowed to do so. You and I notice here he mentions the prince two more times. And each time the prince had a noteworthy and very special work related to encouraging the people in their worship of the Almighty God of heaven. Notice again, this prince is the civil leader of the land. May I ask, does this help us see that is it true God wishes those in civil positions, those in government positions, if you please, to encourage His people to serve Him, to encourage His people and lift up their hands as they strive to worship. That seems to be exactly what is said. Isn't it a woeful thing then when civil leaders have a disdain for the Word of God, when they have little if any interest in it, when in fact they try to make it harder to serve God? We need to have leaders in government and other places who are ready to encourage the work of God, not to make it harder who are ready to encourage the hands and lift up the hands of those striving to be Christians, not to make life harder for them. God lifted high the thought of a leader who'd help His people serve, not make it more difficult. 
Second lesson might well then be God's mention of both justice and equity. God said in this temple consideration there would be a just balance and a just hen and a just ephah. There would be no taking advantage one of another. There would not be those selling in terms of filling their pockets at the expense of those who are in need. How quickly your mind and mine rushes to the famous words of our Savior in Matthew 7 verse 12. Therefore all things whatsoever you do, do those things that you would wish others would do unto you. Though you and I might call that the golden rule, we notice here God encouraged it even in the lives of those who were His people in this temple prescription. Justice and equity highlighted as we come to the orderliness seen in the worship of Ezekiel 46.9. People would enter at a certain gate and exit in another one. It was not haphazard, it was not confusion, and it surely was not done with anarchy. May we say that any worship unto God in this present age under the banner of the gospel system must be a worship that's done with orderliness and never done with confusion. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion. And seven verses later, is it not said that let all things be done decently and in order? We seemingly see that highlighted even in the ancient era of what would be the beauty of that temple worship. Finally, the last lesson, and we mustn't pass by it too quickly. We realize that the system set forth in this temple vision was a system that highlighted what the people of that day were able to understand. They were familiar with the temple worship. They were familiar with animal sacrifices. But they knew the perfection to be seen in that vision of Ezekiel was far greater than anything they had heretofore experienced. You and I learned last week that this temple, on the whole, points to the perfectness and the exquisiteness of the gospel system that you and I enjoy in Jesus, a system far better physically than anything they ever had. No wonder then we should remind ourselves that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, to borrow Hebrews 10 verse 4, that it could never make the comers there too perfect, Hebrews 10 verse 1, that it could never justify a man from sin, Acts 13 verses 38 and 39. It wasn't possible. Thanks be unto God, we live beneath then a system to which this pointed, but a system of perfection, a system far greater. Is it any wonder then as we pass by those images again, we notice the grandeur of this temple pointing to the perfectness of the gospel system. The blood of Christ that made the perfect forgiveness of sins available and the blood of Christ that allows one to be ushered into glories of heaven evermore. This division of the land and all the perfectness with which it was outlined, highlighting again the perfectness of God's church. Human hands never touched it. It was purchased with the blood of Christ, Acts 20, 28. It was, in fact, fashioned without spot or blemish, Ephesians 5, 27. It was set forth with all the grandeur of what the Lord demanded. It was not the idea of men. You can see in light of all of that, it prepares us then for the last two chapters of our study, the last two chapters in the book of Ezekiel. What else might be said? We've highlighted the temple and its finger that it points to the gospel system. We've highlighted the priests and those that would serve in it. May I suggest that in some ways the best has been saved for last. 
a section I've entitled Waters and Land Division, chapters 47 and 48 of this book of Ezekiel. What do we find in these two chapters? What is the message with which God leaves us? What are the final messages the Holy Spirit has for us in these two last chapters of the book of Ezekiel? First of all, waters. You may remember that as chapter number 40 began, Ezekiel was brought in a vision and given the opportunity to see this temple that we saw last week and the things that we have seen so far this evening. As we remember him still in vision, chapter 47 verse 1 says, He brought me back to the temple, and not just to the temple in general, but brought me to the inner recesses, and he was able to witness the altar. Something very strange. He saw something coming out from underneath the right side of the altar. What was it? It was a stream of water. And hence the word waters as a part of the title of this section. Do you recall that blue stream that I pointed out a moment ago on that temple picture? That was a stream of water. And Ezekiel saw this water emanate out from underneath the altar, and as it came out its right side, it flowed outward through the temple. And at first, it was a very shallow stream, only ankle deep, the text tells us. However, the man who was nearby, that one who had a measuring reed in his hand, he measured the depth of the water, and he also measured the distance that the water traveled. After a thousand measures, he measured it again, and now it was knee-deep. It was deeper than it was before. After another thousand measures, he measured it again, and now it was waist high. Interesting, this water is deepening the further it travels. One more time, after another thousand measures, he measured it again, and now it was so deep you had to swim across it. It was deeper than a man. As you and I think about the interesting feature of this water that deepens the further it travels, we'll revisit that in just a moment. But you'll notice something else is observed. On each side of this river of water are trees, and these trees are extremely unusual. They bear fruits every month. That's odd. The fruit is always to be found, it seems, on these trees. But even that isn't the most interesting. We notice that the waters that flowed through the channel of these trees and this water that came out of that altar... It was a water that had healing power within it, and anything it touched, it healed it. Trees on each side bearing fruit always, waters that had the power of healing character within them. We'll ask in a moment what that might suggest. For right now, let's finish the literal consideration by noting that chapters 47 and 48 also make mention of this. The borders of the land are highlighted. Borders that might well be described by this picture. You'll notice that as you look at this border, in the very center is the middle portrait or picture that you and I had seen earlier. The land, the Levites, the particular nature of where the prince was to reside. All of that is in that center section. But you'll quickly notice that the 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned in relation, and some of them have their land allotment to the north, and others their land allotment to the south. And so, reading from the temple upward, you see Judah, and Reuben, and Ephraim, and Manasseh, Naphtali, Asher, and Dan. In the order delivered to us in Ezekiel chapters 47 and 48, 
Just south, you notice that there's Benjamin and then Simeon and Issachar and Zebulun and Gad. As you look at the layout and what is highlighted relative to those tribes, I would ask you to notice something interesting. What were the two tribes that were the nearest to the temple? Clearly, the one to the north is Judah, the one to the south is Benjamin. Of all the twelve tribes of Israel, when the kingdom divided, which were the only two that remained faithful to the prescriptions of God? Which two comprised the southern kingdom? It was Benjamin and Judah. Could this be a way that God helps remind us that He did take note of those that were faithful and He did take note of the devotion that they had exhibited toward Him? Perhaps. You'll also notice that the one furthest away in the north is Dan, the tribe of Dan. I might suggest as you think about what that could have in mind, there is one last reference in all of the Bible to a specific listing of the tribes, and it's found in Revelation 7. Of all the tribes, which one is not listed in Revelation 7? By now you can guess it. It's the tribe of Dan. As you think about what those things may suggest and this division and allotment of the land, let's look at yet another picture. If you're able to read that, it too has a more relief structure to it, showing again the presentation of the tribes. It lists them from Benjamin southward and from Judah northward. All of that highlights for us this powerful way the book chooses to close. Returning back to those previous slides, let's make mention of this interesting set of lessons and then make one final thought as we come to chapter 48 from a different perspective. First of all, what great blessings we seemingly see. Think again about that water that deepened the further it traveled. Ankle deep, then knee deep, and then waist deep, and finally even deeper than a man. Does that not suggest that in the overflowing character of God's blessings, this present system, the Old Testament system in which we're studying, would give way to a far deeper set of blessings from God? Isn't that what we read of in Ephesians 1 verse 3? Does it there not say that all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus our Lord? Does it not affirm for us that then outside Christ, the deepening point has come by the time of Jesus to where now the blessing is for all? It's not just reserved for those who are literally descended from Abraham or Isaac. The gospel invitation is extended to each person today, isn't it? And in that grandness, it seems as though the deepening nature of that water highlights how that through the channels of time, that deepening agency would now be the blessing that you and I so wonderfully enjoy. Might we consider another matter? We noticed that there were trees on each side of that stream and they bore fruit all the time. We can't help but see a parallel to a description found in Revelation 22, the very last chapter in the Bible. There, what did John see? John also saw a city, a city coming down from heaven, and he furthermore saw that there was a flowing river, a river on which there were trees on each side, and those trees bore fruit all the time, Revelation 22, verses 4 and following. The parallel is inescapable. 
That which John saw, of course, talk, takes us to the beautiful city of heaven and the characteristic of the faithful through all the ages of time able to recognize that there is no more curse in that blessed place. Could it be that what Ezekiel saw pointed forward to the grandest blessing of all in the Christian era, the hope of heaven, and the marvelous wonder that this temple that Ezekiel saw was just a representation, maybe a slight one at that, of the greatest temple to be found of all. Didn't Revelation 21 describe the fact that in this city of heaven there is no temple because we're in the very presence of the God of heaven Himself? Perhaps as you close that slide, you'll notice that it does highlight one last thought. As we come to that division of the land in chapter number 48, that picture that you and I noticed a moment ago with the tribes and the arrangement that we saw, here are some final thoughts. There are those who look upon the physical dimensions that you and I have observed. 25,000 cubits, for example, they say that is literal. And there are a whole host of individuals on our earth today who use these chapters in Ezekiel and say that temple is literally going to be built some future day in a millennial reign of Jesus. They claim that this will be actually laid out exactly according to that which we've seen. May I suggest to you that is nonsense. It's absurdity of the highest order. Look at the dimensions alone. If you lay out this 25,000 dimension as you and I have observed it, that comes to 50, over 51 miles. My friend, the land of Canaan in its east-west dimension is not that big. And yet we're being told that this is supposedly the full land allotment in some future millennium. It isn't so. And what about that altar out of which water is flowing literally through the temple and through literally through the fullness of that land and deepening as it goes? Literal? I think not. In fact, you and I appreciate so well that the messages have pointed to Christ and the flowing nature of His blood and the perfectness of His body, the church, and ultimately to that great temple that we'll appreciate in some grand day beyond here. You'll notice that all those things bring us to these final lessons and then one concluding observation. Did you notice in chapter 48? It seems fitting to me the very last verse in the book of Ezekiel is this one. Ezekiel 48, verse 35. It was round about 18,000 measures. The name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. That can't help but bring a smile to our face. The name of the city, the Lord is there. What greater name could there be than that? And may I suggest to you, the name of the city, the Lord is there, points squarely at the nature of the fact that, do we not read in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them? And do we not read in the book of Revelation how sweet it is? To contemplate the Lord is there. The curtain closes on the book of Ezekiel in that fashion and in that way. And it can help but point us to the blessing of what we enjoy in the nature of the church of which you and I are a member. It is true that the people to whom Ezekiel at that time was writing, they were in captivity then, but they were going to come forth from it. The Valley of Dry Bones had taught us that. And when they returned, they would reestablish their worship. They would rebuild a temple. 
they would engage again, as the books of Ezekiel and Nehemiah tell us, in the nature of animal sacrifices and worship. But all through these closing chapters, the finger is pointed to a day better than the Old Testament sacrifices. We've looked at a temple like this one that spoke of a grander, better day. We've even seen an exquisite deepening of the blessing of God as time goes onward. And you and I know that came to pass with the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4. This gospel that you and I have obeyed, it is a gospel far deeper than the Old Testament portrayed. It is a gospel that in fact the prophets and angels desire to look into. 1 Peter 1 verses 6 through 9. As we close it, look at some of these verses. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. It is the house of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. This church of which you and I are a part takes it to Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Remember it said, the name of the city, the Lord is there. Didn't Jesus say, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. With those thoughts in mind, May we use the final words of Ezekiel to challenge each of us and to ask ourselves these questions and these thoughts. Have you availed yourself of the blessings portrayed in the closing chapters of Ezekiel? These last nine chapters have been a figurative representation of just how deep and just how great the blessings of Christianity ultimately emanating even into heaven shall be. Are you availing yourself of them? Or have you run roughshod over all that God has made available? It is the case that this very evening, we again could pass by these pictures and ask ourselves, this is not a literal consideration that's going to happen in the millennium. The Bible doesn't teach premillennialism. It doesn't teach that brand of matter. It does teach that all those things conclude in some lessons that you and I might state like this. And perhaps no finer way would there be to close it than to ask again. Lessons like holiness. Ezekiel has taught it well. Are you and I living holily, righteously, and godly each day? We must under the banner of Titus 2.12. Are we living dedicated unto the Lord, placing Him first in our priorities? We must under the banner of Matthew 6.33. Ezekiel has taught us those things among these others. The orderliness of worship the characteristic attached to it, thus saith the Lord, and to pursue that by His authority. Whatsoever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, to quote Colossians 3.17. Furthermore, we saw in chapters 47 and 48, the impressiveness of properly and rightly dividing the sacred Word of God. Demanded of us in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman, that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I trust that our study of Ezekiel has been an interesting, intriguing, and encouraging thing, not just an Old Testament relic of a book that's better off left to be dusted, but rather a book that does speak to you and me in terms of great blessing and great sweetness in the gospel era today. If you're not a New Testament Christian, this book then probably hasn't spoken much to you. But I hope it encourages you to urgently consider the danger that you're in. God judged the ancient people of Judah because of their sin. He extended a hand of urgency to them, but they would not hear it. He extends a hand of urgency to you today. 
He proclaims to you through the gospel that you need to make some changes at once. Don't let this evening pass if that's the need of your heart and life. The invitation is extended. We're going to stand in a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. And Ezekiel shouts to us, perhaps the most best, the best known verse of the whole book, chapter 18, verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. It is true, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. If you haven't been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are subject then to death, and it won't change until you're forgiven of sin. This, this very night, if you've never rendered initial obedience to the gospel invitation, why not this very night? What better way could there be to close this year and welcome a new one? That plan of salvation demands you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in that way tonight, we would love to do it. If you have become a member of that body at some former day, but you've forgotten the great teachings of these last nine chapters of Ezekiel, why not be rededicated to your first love? Revelation 2.5 encourages you toward that end. We'd be delighted to pray with you and also for you. If tonight we could help you in either of those ways, we would urge you to come while together we stand and while we sing.